Welcome to Pocket Politics. This is a series of podcasts brought to you by the University of Sheffield Politics Society. These podcasts feature members of staff from the Politics Department, talking about topics from global politics to the mental health of MPs. So sit back and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Pocket Politics from Polsock at the University of Sheffield. Just a quick disclaimer, all of the views expressed on the podcast are simply those of uh, those speaking on the podcast uh, and not those of the University of Sheffield or Polsock or any other organisation. They're just our views. Uh, my, my name's Alex um, and on the podcast today we have uh, Liam and Pete. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the recent takeover of Newcastle United by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about the general implications of sports washing in uh, English football, European football and other sports in general. So would either of you like to start us off uh, and tell us what happened specifically with uh, this uh, recent deal? Yeah, basically um, Newcastle who've been owned by Mike Ashley for the last 14 years, I think, were bought uh, for 300 million by the Capital Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, which is like the country's sovereign wealth fund, which they can choose to um, how to invest how they wish. Um, the woman that's sort of the uh, mediator between Newcastle and Saudi Arabia, Amanda Stavely, says that... Um, the fact that it's been bought by the investment fund means that it's completely disconnected from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so haven't haven't they they've been the Premier League have been given legal assurance that the Saudi Arabian government will have no impact on the actual management of the football club, which is quite quite hard to believe because obviously they don't need the profit, they don't need the the massive profit of uh, football and the popularity of it. So. As I believe, um, Newcastle was put up for sale in 2017 by Mike Ashley, the previous owner. And in 2020, the Saudis came in with a, a £300 million offer to buy out the club, which I think Mike Ashley was, was willing to accept. But the Premier League objected to it because of BN Sports, which is a Saudi-owned broadcasting company, I believe. Uh, Liam, do you, you, you knew about this. Yes, yeah, so... Initially, when the takeover was first muted, it was something that I think all parties in England were on board with. But the problem was there was obviously this long-running political dispute between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And BN Sports is the host broadcaster for the Premier League in the Middle East. It's, um, it's a Qatari broadcaster. And they have the rights to show not just the Premier League, but also the Champions League and all, pretty much all of Europe's top leagues. And for a period of time, BN Sports was banned in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian government, they banned it and they took their feed, their broadcast, the, um, the English language broadcast to be in sports is probably best known for being where Richard Keyes and Andy Gray ended up after leaving Sky Sports. So it's quite a popular broadcast and they took the footage, they took the studio output, they took the match picture and then they showed it in Saudi Arabia under the name BOTQ they for long dispute and that, that's why the Premier League couldn't do it because there was a party dispute and then as soon as, because of an easing of political tensions this year between the two countries, it was agreed that Qatar and Saudi Arabia would 
allow being sports to air in Saudi Arabia again, meaning the Paris shift was, was resolved. And just three hours later, the Premier League approved takeover. Um, I think obviously now Newcastle are the richest club in the world, not just the Premier League. So obviously money doesn't buy success in football, but it can go it can go a very long way to obviously improving players, you know, train um, training facilities, manager, the sack Steve Bruce. I mean, it's not going to be a quick rise to the top of the Premier League because you look at their squad, um, you know, the facilities, everything. Like Man City when when Man City were bought out by um, Abu Dhabi, isn't it? Um, they implemented a five-year plan, I think it was, to try and get them to um, win the Premier League. And I think they managed that. So for Newcastle, I think, obviously, the richest club in the world, but there's got to be a certain strategic element to how they're going to use that money to build a winning team or a long-term sort of plan to get them challenging for Premier League, Champions League, which they haven't ever done or haven't been close to doing in the past 50 years. Yeah. I think they're going to struggle a lot to achieve it because the comparisons, the obvious comparisons, it's Chelsea and it's Man City, but if you look at the way the Premier League was and the way that UEFA's financial structure was back then, it was very easy for Chelsea to do it because only Man United and Arsenal decided the top. When Man City came in, they were able to spend it with money and as you say, they won the league four years later. Um, FFP came in in 2011 and it was designed, pushed at the behest of clubs like Manchester United, like Juventus, like Barcelona. It was designed to stop another Man City, another PSG. The way the football landscape is now, you've got the entrenched big six in the Premier League, you've got financial fair play. Newcastle can't just go and spend 500 million in the next three transfer windows and win everything. It's going to be harder for them because the Premier League is more competitive and because there are now rules in place to stop there being another Chelsea who went and won the league within two years, City won it in four years. I don't think Newcastle are going to be the footballing superpower people think they're going to be because there will be limits on what they can spend. And I don't think, I don't think in five years' time they will be in the Champions League, in my opinion. Not, not, not even in the Champions League, you don't think? No, I think they'll be. Wolves, Everton, they'll be at that level. I mean, Wolves have got hundreds of millions, Everton have got hundreds of millions, but... Gosh. And it's also, yes, because the PIF have so much money, but that doesn't mean they're going to spend absolutely all of it on football. It's going to be yeah. a percentage. I think they'll get they'll get the Europa League, I think, but I don't... They're not going to be getting back in the top four by, say, 2025, I don't think. Yeah, because it's, it's too saturated by the super-rich clubs at the top of the Premier League. That's interesting. I, I, I always assumed that um, you know, once, I mean, if you, if you saw those pie charts on Twitter you know, of, uh, of the Newcastle owners um, having it, just like a massive chunk of the wealth of uh, all of the Premier League clubs, um, I suppose a bit misleading because it's, you know, three, what, three, was it 300 billion, the, the net worth of the new Newcastle owners, you know, as if they're going to spend a large chunk of their wealth on Newcastle. It's a bit, those ones are quite misleading. But I, I did think, though, with even despite financial fair play, they would be able to, you know, go and buy those big players eventually. I mean, they they do they might well get relegated this year, which would would be hilarious. But I guess with uh, sports washing, um, sports washing, the term used to describe the way sports, especially football, 
is used to launder a country's reputation, sort of gloss over. Usually they usually those countries, those countries or big organizations buy out football clubs as as a way of sort of clearing their reputation internationally by having a stake in such a popular worldwide industry. Obviously the like the most recent most popular examples are the Manchester City being owned effectively by the United Arab Emirates, Paris Saint-Germain being owned by the Qatar government and the Emirates Qatar also have loads of sponsorship deals with other clubs such as Real Madrid, Arsenal and so on. And oh and and the 2022 World Cup which is being hosted in Qatar which will be held next November which is incredibly weird because that will be that will be the uh, autumn the winter for most of us and we'll completely cut the season in half of football because it'll be right in the middle of the European domestic season. Like this isn't the first instance of Saudi Arabia engaging in sports washing. If you look at the high-profile boxing fights they've had recently, they're heavily invested in sports, in um, horse racing, sorry. And yeah, like you said, it's to sort of create a outward-looking image. Yeah, and the whole aspect of state-run football teams, it's just a symptom of that whole idea of using a game so internationally popular to try and rebrand regimes that are genuinely terrible really yeah i suppose i suppose in the instance of saudi arabia i think we better sort of go over what they've actually done or or what the sort of climate is um in terms of human rights specifically in that country uh, i've I, I looked at the uh, amnesty international the report they gave was some of the things the Saudis do is they use torture as punishment. There's an example where someone has been flogged, uh, sentenced to a thousand lashes for um, insulting Islam. Or what he actually did was um, he had like an online forum that was talking about political freedom, religious freedom. They hold public beheadings, many, many um, ex- pu- uh, executions. They have the death penalty. Uh, there's no free speech or uh, right to protest. Um, and discrimination against women um, is protected by law. They're they're meant to be um, sort of subordinate citizens to men, women. There have I, I believe there have been some reforms recently. There's a like a, there's a Vision 2030 agenda, sort of headed by the uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, which I, I think which I believe aims to create sort of reforms, uh, economic and social reforms in Saudi Arabia. I, th- I think women women have been allowed to drive. Uh, Liam, did you know much about the reforms? Yeah, so the 2030 project you referred to is about, really it's about enhancing Saudi Arabia's worldwide vision. It kind of starts when um, Bin Salman comes into power and he very much, he dubbed himself the progressive prince. There was a number of um, articles written in the Western press, particularly in America, that tried to push this idea and then it's a combination of very minor policy reforms. So the big one they've jumped is women driving. Women are allowed to drive at certain times of the day in the company of you know, their father or their husband or whatever. This coincided in 2018 with them starting this big um, sports watching project. Obviously earlier, um, we mentioned boxing, Andy Josh was right with them. Andy Ruiz was out there. They've got a 10 year deal with the WWE to do two um, pay-per-view events there, one in the spring, one of the autumn, the events are really quite difficult to watch sometimes because they play these propaganda videos at the intervals. They have the commentators and the rest of us talk about how beautiful 
and progressive Saudi Arabia is. And I do remember the second WWE show there was in October 2018, and it was right after the marriage of Jamal Khashoggi, which the event which massively hindered the sports washing. I mean, John Cena was the biggest star on that show, and he pulled out. His PR people told him, you are not going to be going to Saudi Arabia. Since then, we've got just in a few weeks, there's going to be the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix in Formula 1, which is going to be this big event. But the whole point of the 2030 project is that by 2030, Saudi Arabia's world image is going to be more progressive. And when you think of Saudi Arabia, you don't think of bombings, you don't think of beheadings, you don't think of religious fundamentalism, that you think of Newcastle Football Club, you think of the WWE, you think of Formula One. And that's how, and you know sports washing works when you see outside St. James's Park dressed up, chanting, we've got our club back, we've got our club back, it's also perfect getting the values back from Mike Ashley. The values they're talking about, the values that you've just mentioned, the values of you know, misogyny, of bombings, of executions. And if those are the values that Newcastle want to associate themselves with, so be it. But I think watch any Newcastle home game, you've got the perfect example of sports watching and why it's so effective. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's, it's, it's not just Newcastle, though, because whenever, whenever fans actually protest against their owners, it's almost entirely because because of a uh, lack of success on the pitch. I, I mean, our Arsenal fans will only say Cronky out because Arsenal have been so poor the, over the last few years. I think the only example where uh, fans have actually, <laughs> where fans have actually protested against the owners for uh, actually good moral reasons is the European Super League. Um, but that's the only exception I can think of. I think, I think one, another thing that sports washing does it kind of takes the character out of those football clubs. If you look at Man City, I mean, the word that comes to mind to me is plastic. I mean, if you look at the stadium, um, how it's often not not filled. You can, you know, they're on this app called Uni Days. They're selling tickets for twelve pound fifty for a Champions League match. Which, if if you go, if you see the prices for other Champions League games, especially Liverpool, which is just, it's just incredible, incredibly low price. Um, but it does. It does take the character out of football because it's such a big cultural thing for fans. Because the owners are now so wealthy, and they no longer rely on the fans for revenue, which takes the fans out of the equation. So they they are now essentially window dressing. One of the main things of sports washing, you know, that they'll now see Saudi Arabia more favourably because they're pumping. They're going to be pumping loads of money into their club. I suppose there are certain reasons why you could understand why they'd be so happy, those Newcastle fans, thinking they're going to win the league in however many years. But the moral implications of the buyout, they seem to be completely oblivious of those moral implications. Yeah, I do. I do, I do get... Obviously, you can understand why they're so happy, because if, if it's a choice between Joel Linton up front or you know Kylian Mbappe, then... You're going to be happy, you know. Like at the same time, you know, I'm a Northampton fan. I mean, we're doing well with third in League Two at the minute. But you know, say Qatar came and bought us, and we went and won the Premier League, you know, I'll be happy. But at the same time, like you were saying, you do lose that authenticity to it. You know, like the other week, I got the train from here, a couple two and a half hours to Hartlepool, saw us lose two one in the last minute, spent sixty quid on it, you know, and for what? And you'd you'd lose that. You'd lose the 
you'd lose the um, jeopardy involved. I think Newcastle fans, you know, they've been finishing, what, 14th, 13th, the last couple of years, been in the Championship twice in the last decade. And for a club like that, the size of that club, I, I went to Newcastle a couple of times in the summer and you can't, you can't walk, like, anywhere without seeing, you know, Newcastle shirts. It's got massive, massive potential. But for me, if I'm a Newcastle fan and you, you're losing that jeopardy, you're losing that anything anything can happen this weekend, you know, you turn up to St. James's Park and you're just expecting a 4-0 win. You know, I think part part of the football fan in you dies there, really, you know, as good as it would feel, you know, as good as they, they'd feel to see them win the Champions League or whatever. Um, you know, I think it is quite a soulless exercise in sports washing, unfortunately. But, you know, the benefits of that, titles, you know, I think for them, for the majority of Newcastle fans, I think, unfortunately, <laughs> titles um, outweigh sort of international morality. Yeah, I suppose the, the currency of football and the currency of happiness is success really um and, and, and trophies if i mean they, they've been so poor over the last 20 years newcastle i mean i, I don't know how many they've been relegated twice three times they did have I, I remember they had title charges in the late nine i think the 90s yeah but i guess because of the influence of money in football you you no longer get that sort of element of chance and one of the things that sports washing i suppose is changing is because all of those because of the nature of sports washing those massive those massive uh, the, i mean saudi, the saudi sovereign wealth fund could have gone and bought out arsenal they definitely had the money for it but the reason they didn't go for arsenal was because it's already a big brand if you go and make newcastle a globally successful brand um you know with, with you know people in china hong kong uh, Japan going about wearing Newcastle shirts. It's it's making that smaller club into a global brand. They get the return of their investment on the increase that they get from that growth. I think you do make a very good point about why they picked Newcastle, which is that they want to be popular. And Newcastle, the bar has been set so low by the club. I mean, I've seen the club described as a ghost ship, the club have had no ambition that has just sort of bounced along, never said earlier, 13, 14, 13, um, bounced on the mid-table with the odd relegation. There's no particular last few years. They've not at any point, I don't think, looked seriously like going down, but they've never looked like trying to push for Europe or even going for it in the cuts. So bare minimum effort would have sufficed to make themselves popular by just trying. Whether that's it, if they're taking over one of the established clubs, there's already an expectation, like at Chelsea, when Levanovic is popular, um, Man United is pretty much unbuyable, Man City, again, pretty much unbuyable, Arsenal already is too big, and they and Arsenal, they're doing immediate success. If Newcastle finish 10th next season, the fans will adore them. So I think you make a very good point about selectively picking brands, a bit, a bit like what Red Bull did, and Red Bull is obviously nowhere near as bad as. Um, Saudi Arabia, but Red Bull, they want to make the Red Bull brand palatable. That's why Red Bull, they've got Formula One team, they own Leipzig, they own Salzburg, they want to own, a, they wanted to own a club in England at one point, they wanted to own Swindon at one point, I believe, and then and never ended up doing it. But it's all about 
associating your brand and making something small into something big, and that's why they picked Newcastle. And that's why I think Newcastle fans are taking to them because, again, literally anyone would have been better than Mike Ashley. Yeah, I think you're right. God, Red Bull Swindon, what could have been? That's definitely true. I suppose with the influence of specifically the Middle Eastern clubs on sports washing, although I suppose there is an element of sort of hypocrisy when if I suppose if, if Liverpool and Man United fans criticise Manchester City, uh, PSG and those clubs owned by Middle Eastern states, I suppose there is an element of hypocrisy because uh, Liverpool and Man, Man United are owned but do have American owners, uh, essentially um, hedge fund managers, who whose entire purpose is to create wealth for themselves. Their their purpose is, is risk taking to make themselves obscenely rich. So I suppose there is an element of hypocrisy and what aboutery, because every every big club has has rich owners and all of those rich owners will have some sort of history and and story behind their their power because because they're so obscenely rich and they can buy out these clubs uh, but in the in the middle eastern case it's worse because of how they treat their own people and the specific reason that of exploiting and polluting a globally popular uh, sport, a culturally significant sport, football, as well as other sports, to cleanse themselves of this reputation. Yeah, I think we're coming to the end of the podcast. If either of you want to make any concluding remarks, Liam? I think on the whole, when you look at the situation, it, it's difficult not to empathise with Newcastle fans because the relief they must be feeling, and it was a situation that Chelsea fans were in you know, 18 years ago and the fans of any club that's taken over are in, but Newcastle fans need to make the effort to understand why people have problems with the the rampant, like the homophobia, the misogyny, the bombings, all of the problems with Saudi Arabia. No one is asking Newcastle fans to be, you know, to be repentant for Saudi Arabia sins. No one's telling them that they are responsible, but there's a line between being cautiously optimistic about the future and dressing up as you know MBS and celebrating as if they've won the lottery and yes they have won the football lottery but there is a nuance to this there's a nuance that needs to be um, taken here there's the line that I think a lot of fans are saying no one is reasonably asking them to stop supporting Newcastle but what I think we are asking of them is to understand the history of Saudi Arabia um, I know that you know, I'm a Chelsea fan and I know that there is a history with Roman Abramovich of how he made his money is through Russian oil and that's not the most ethical industry. So while I'm grateful and admirable of the work he's done, I don't adore Roman Abramovich as a person. I think you have to draw the line and I think so far we're not seeing that from Newcastle. They need to understand that they are being used as part of a wider ploy and understand their role in that. But ultimately we shouldn't we shouldn't sneer at Newcastle fans being happy, but at the same time, we should ultimately just ask them to be aware of why there are misgivings about the takeover, why people are concerned, and just really to do some research and to understand all sides of it. Yeah, I think personally for me, the blame lies with the Premier League. I think the Premier League got a lot to answer for because Newcastle fans, I don't think it is a reasonable thing to say that 
um, that they should be that they can't comprehend the morality of the situation, that they can't comprehend that who's taken over their club are not good people in terms of human rights abuses, etc. But it's the Premier League that has allowed them to get to the point where they don't care who owns them because they're going to pump loads of money into their club. You know, like why did the Premier League um, try and prevent this happening when it occurred in 2016 or whatever it was? You know, obviously it wasn't because of because Saudi Arabia has not changed in in general in that time. So, you know, it it clearly wasn't for for reasons like that. And when you know you've got an organisation that um, says it's inclusive, look like um, you know has campaign has campaigns such as you know rainbow laces for LGBT people, yet get into bed with a state that oppresses such people. I think. A lot of the blame for this situation does lie with the Premier League, and I think they've got a lot to answer for. Newcastle fans, um, you know, I personally do not blame them for how they're feeling, but, you know, I think it has to be taken into account. But the fact is that the Premier League has allowed them to, has allowed this to happen. And I think, yeah, they do have a lot to answer for, for an organisation that is supposed to be outward looking and inclusive. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Especially when you you look at those rainbow laces campaigns and the the, the anti racism campaigns, you can see trying to put the corporate face of moral enlightenment um, on. But you know, money money talks, and in this case, it's another it's another case in which money has won over morality. In the case of uh, in the case of football and authenticity. Okay, uh, thank you, Liam and Pete, um, and thanks for listening uh, to Pocket Politics. And we will be back with another episode in the coming weeks. Bye.